Hi everybody and welcome to a very belated edition of the Copa Libertadores pod on the World Football Index. The guys kind of missed, due to technical difficulties, we, we missed uh, recording after the games the last time. But thanks to the schedule, we still have plenty of time to bring you up to date on what's going on. As usual, join me on the pod tonight. First up, we have Adam Brandon and Chile. Adam, how's the cat, the dog, the child, all things there in your zoo? <laughs> yeah, all things are good. Thanks. I've got, I've got a dog one side, a cat another. So well, um, this yeah, cat just, seems to be a new addition. Like well, listeners would be very familiar with your dog, but the cat seems to be a new addition here. Yeah, I, I didn't consider the podcasting when I when I got him. Clearly, unfortunately. <laughs> there, we <go>. yeah. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Anything else? No, no, fine. Go and mute. It's fine. <laughs> and then, okay, so next up we have in Medellin, in Colombia, we have Simon Edwards. How are you, Simon? This evening, no, no, no animal troubles there. No, no animal troubles. Uh, Just my the natives. Actually, <laughs> the natives, and uh, keep my mum busy. She's uh, on holiday here, and she's based. She has to be busy hundred. 100% of the time, so went to the water park last this week. She went to the some concert today, so tomorrow going bike riding. So full-time job keeping my mum entertained this week here in Medellin. Good luck with that. I'll just say, can we not get you back to the water park? The Wi-Fi was great out there. <laughs> it's the best reception we ever had from you at a water park uh, with the ambience of birdsong as well. It was rather nice. And last but certainly not least, um, our Brazilian expert in Chicago, I take it, um, is Austin Miller. How are you, Austin? I guarantee you've got your location wrong. No, you got it right. I'm back in Chicago. Oh. If this podcast yeah. would have happened when it was supposed to happen, I would have been in North Carolina. But the delay due to the technical issues and then getting our schedules all sorted out does mean that I'm back in Chicago. And I have had a bit of time to process you know, these games. And so it is a l- little nicer to not have to come on this fresh off the disappointment of an elimination, but kind of letting it sit for a little bit. It's okay. I'm over it. Palmeiras, it's fine. It's all good. I think Everything's you're, be you're good. in the minority there. I think, I think we've all forgotten these games. By <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad it's still fresh in your memory. <laughs> Listen, we'll start off with the Tuesday night games anyhow. And it's uh, our, one of our little favorite teams, the strongest uh, fallout, the lost 1-0 uh, to Lanus, who progressed. Simon, I think you're going to take take us through this one. Uh, we, we had hopes for the strongest, but on the night, they just they just weren't there. No, no. Um, really, Lanús could have scored a few more. Uh, they missed a lot of lot of chances. They had a, a goal ruled out for offside as well. So really, um, the strongest came back into it a little bit in the second half. But we're, with the chances Lanús had in the first half, they should have really scored. They were a bit unlucky with an offside. Uh, Jose Sand and uh, Lotaro Acosta, really nice little one-twos around the corner. They scored, ruled offside. They hit the bar three or four times. Uh, Sand, <clears throat> uh, Silva Gonzalez, and Acosta in the front three, creating lots and lots of chances. Uh, eventually, they scored, but right at the end, you know, in the second half, the strongest had a bit more. Um, Pablo Escobar had a had a good chance one on one. There was a few crosses that kind of just drifted behind the, the attacker or fell just 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 short of the the onrushing players. But but really, Lanús will be disappointed to have not made it a little bit more simple uh, and scored earlier on. Uh, as I say, lots and lots of chances, lots of big misses, but some nice build-up play. Uh, and then in the end, uh, Sand uh, got the winner right towards the end in the 80, 80th minute, 85th minute uh, to end the game. Um, so yeah, Lanús, comfortable, should have been a little bit more comfortable. Uh, the strongest had a few chances, but yeah, I think Lanús uh, La were quite a lot stronger than the night. Didn't, didn't the strongest have a chance right at the death to send it to penalties? At the very end of this match, the strongest had a dangerous free kick 
right outside the 18 and they sent their their striker Alonso up to take it and he just delivered one of the worst dead balls I've ever seen. It just went straight out of play, didn't give anybody a chance for it. And it kind of summed up, summed up the night I thought for the strongest. They were just disappointing, really. Uh, all the players that we were so impressed with throughout the group stages, um, you know, Escobar, uh, Matias Alonso. Yeah, they peaked early, didn't they? The strongest, that was the thing in this competition. They just about made it through their group. I think if they'd played a slightly more attacking team in that last group game, apart from Santa Fe, <laughs> we might not have even seen them in the knockout stages. But um, but yeah, it's a, it's a shame, really, because I, I, I do feel this team had quite a lot of potential. But in the end, they proved themselves not to be even the strongest Bolivian side in the competition. Well, listen, we'll move along anyhow. We'll, we'll take a look at the last eight whenever we get through the games and, and, and what, what who were fancy and so on. But next up, we saw River Plate playing Guarani. Basically, River were through from the away leg. Uh, it ended up a 1-1 draw in this one. Who, who wants to fire ahead with this one? Guarani put up a little bit of a fight in this match. They scored right before halftime. They went up 1-0. Obviously, they would have had to win by, by three to have gone through straight or by two to send it to penalties they weren't able to do that river plate scored pretty quickly after halftime to kind of put this one to bed it wasn't the most impressive performance we've seen from river but dave as you said they kind of did their job in the first leg they went through and they went through pretty easily we're really only in in danger for about five or ten minutes coming out of halftime uh, took care of that and are through to the quarterfinals the biggest question, I think, with River, and we'll get into this in a bit when we talk about them going forward, is it is a club that has seen some turnover since the group stage. There's some new faces in there. So how those players kind of mesh together when the quarterfinals do eventually come around in September will probably be the biggest question for them. But this was another tie where the better team went through, and it really wasn't ever in question. No, absolutely. I mean, the, there was, the first half was a little bit more open. Um, and the, the goal for Guarani was really nice. Marcelo Paleo with the diving header flying across from the, the far post and just heading it in from a not tight angle. But yeah, as soon as River Plate bundled in that equaliser, it was kind of game over. The second half kind of just ran its course without much happening. But it was a bit more interesting uh, up until uh, that, that River equaliser. And it looked like Guarani for a, for a minute, as you mentioned, might make it interesting. But as soon as that goal was bundled in, uh, by uh, by River Plate, it was kind of end of the tie. So if we move on forward then uh, into the Wednesday games, and, and, and Austin, this will be one for you. Uh, we saw Grêmio beating Godoy Cruz two to one. You know that they, they were they were in control from the first leg. What what can you tell us about this one? This was a pretty good match. Um, Grêmio were put under pressure. I was really impressed with how Godoy Cruz approached this match. Obviously, down one nil from the first leg, they knew that they had to attack at some point. Uh, and they did that right from the start. And they got a goal in the first 15 minutes on a long shot from distance by Correa. Marcelo Groi, the Gremio goalkeeper, probably could have done better with it. But it was a good effort. It was on target. It, it made the goalie work. And in the end, he wasn't able to make the save. Uh, and a bit of concern there for Gremio because they didn't look at their best for the first 15 minutes. But then from there, they kind of settled into that rhythm and, and they looked like the team that we've seen them look like so far in this competition. A brace from Pedro Hocha, great play from Luan in the build-up to both of those goals. I thought he was fantastic on this night again, as he has been uh, on a lot of nights in this competition for Gremio so far. Uh, and with this performance, I definitely think they set themselves up as one of the favorites in this competition. 
they were troubled at the start, but I thought they rebounded from that well. And it's not always a bad thing to have a bit of adversity in a match like this. They came out of it better. The, the one question mark for Gremio, or not necessarily a question mark, but the blemish on this performance is their defensive midfielder, Michel, picked up a very, very silly second yellow card in the 90th minute of this leg against Godoy Cruz. And because of that, he'll have to sit out the first leg of their quarterfinal against Botafogo. It was a situation where there was no need to pick up a yellow card. There was no need to make a challenge. Uh, and it's going to end up costing him. Gremio has the depth that they can probably uh, be fine with that. Players can come off the bench and, and do a pretty good shift for them. But it is just kind of a, a frustrating situation for the club because, as I said, it was completely unnecessary. And now they'll have to tinker with their 11 a little bit before those quarterfinals. But overall, in these two legs and in this tie, Gremio established themselves as the better side and they established themselves as you know, one of the teams that could absolutely be lifting the Copa Libertadores come the end of November. And you mentioned Luan there. Is there any movement on that? I haven't been following it this week. I was following it, uh, you know, the week before us, and there was an awful lot of links come in for Luan, um, you know, even from England, basically. Has there, has there been any movement? I know Spartak Moscow were in the box seat at one stage, and we were told as Galatasaray were in the box seat, and it all seemed to be revolving around a loan back. Yeah, so the latest is apparently Atletico Madrid are interested in Luan. Uh, Gremio actually released a statement, I believe, either today as we record this or yesterday, um, saying that they have not had any contact with Atletico Madrid. And the rumblings out of southern Brazil are now that there's a bit of discord between Luan and his agent and the club Gremio. Not entirely sure what that is all related to. Um, Luan made it fairly clear that he did not want to go play in Russia. So even though that was the best monetary bid that Gremio had gotten, it also didn't come with a loan back, which is something the club is is definitely looking for. And it wasn't to a place that Luan wanted to go. So it was pretty much a non-starter, that 24 million euro bid from Spartak. Sampdoria then reportedly came in with a 16 million euro bid. And that did involve a loan back to the end of December, which is the ideal situation for Gremio. Um, they're in the semifinals of the Copa do Brasil. They still have a bit of a shout in the Brazilian league, though that's going to be very difficult. But they're absolutely in this competition and they'll want to keep their squad together if they can. But it seems as though nothing's really come from that Sampdoria that bid after the initial reports of it. Now Atletico Madrid are involved and Gremio seem to be shifting towards they don't want to make a move now. And if Luan is still there once this window closes at the end of August, I think Gremio will try to renew his contract and then sell him during the next window with maybe a situation where he's loaned back until the World Cup to make sure he's still getting first-team football to try and get in that squad with Teach. It's still up in the air. It's and pretty much now really or never as well, Austin, at his age. You know, with the age he's had at the Manini, you know, if he doesn't move to Europe now... It's difficult to see that this time in a year, maybe uh, making that move. You know, yeah. Same with, we saw with Lucas Lima. That's exactly what I was going to say. There's a lot of similarities with Lucas Lima, who two years ago looked like he was all set for Europe and now looks no closer to that move than ever before. It feels like he's going to to play out his contract at Santos. That's absolutely what's going to happen. And so there is a situation where that does happen with Luan. His contract goes through the middle of next year. He could play out his contract, but that's not what Gremio wants because then they don't get anything for him. That's probably not what he wants. But I think, Dave, that World Cup being next summer does kind of throw a wrench in all of this 
because he wants to stay at Gremio until the end of December because he, he wants to go out as a club legend, rightfully so, you know, lifting a bunch of trophies. But then there's this six-month window where changing could have an adverse effect on his opportunity to play in a World Cup with Brazil, and I don't think he'll want to do that. So at this point, if if you pinned me down and said I had to make a prediction, I would say he'll move after the World Cup, but I don't feel terribly confident about predicting anything in this situation at the moment. Ah, you never know. Barcelona may come in and offer a hundred million for him. You know that, that's such as their desperation stakes at the moment. But speaking of Barcelona's, uh, I'll stick with you, Austin, because this one's a bit heartbreaking for you. Uh, your Palmeiras won one nil in the night, but unfortunately lost the penalty shootout. You want to talk us through it? Yeah, I, I definitely thought Palmeiras were fortunate to even get to a penalty shootout. Barcelona had a number of chances in front of goal, the majority of them coming as we expected on the counterattack, and they finished quite poorly on the evening. They could have put this tie away a lot sooner. They didn't need, need to suffer through penalties. They did in the end, and they were okay. Palmeiras were poor in the first half, and then Kuka made the, the change that we were all kind of expecting, and that was to bring on Palmeiras' number 10, Moises, who suffered a ligament injury in February. And so this was actually his second match back from that injury. He had played in the domestic league the weekend before. He was clearly not fit to play 90 minutes. He might not have been fit to play 45 minutes for the second time in three days. But he did, and he was brilliant. Picked passes out of the midfield for Palmeiras. I thought he did well doing that. He scored the goal that got this to 1-0. From there, Palmeiras had a chance to steal this tie. Uh, their, their midfielder, Cano, had an opportunity in the 18 that he put off the crossbar. Barcelona had a chance to kill off this tie. Um, a couple players, I thought, finished poorly, as I said, for Barcelona on the night. All in all, this was probably a fair result, if a bit flattering, to the Brazilian champions. And then in penalties, um, Bangueta, the Barcelona goalkeeper, made a pair of saves. Palmeiras' goalkeeper was only able to make one, um, and Palmeiras' left-back, Gigio, the sixth taker for Verdun, had a shot saved, and that sent Barcelona through. Big storyline out of this one uh, was Yeri Mina went out injured in the 40th minute. Uh, he actually fractured his foot and is going to probably miss about three months for Palmeiras. So that is one that I know Colombian national team fans will have their eye on. Barcelona fans, uh, the Spanish Barcelona fans, that is, will have their eye on that as he's a rumored target for them. It was a big blow for Palmeiras. Elimination in the Libertadores was a big blow for the club. But on the whole from the two ties, or the two legs rather, it was probably a fair result given how well Barcelona played even though they finished poorly in pretty much both of the two legs, I thought. Adam, I know you had your eye on this one closely. I know you were certainly pleased with the result for Barcelona. Uh, even if you will probably concede that they certainly could have been much better on the night. As for Barcelona, yeah, I I was a little bit disappointed with their control and finishing in the final third on the night. Caicedo, especially, who missed the first leg, returned for this one. He looked dangerous all night, but lacked composure in front of goal. And also his decision-making could have been better at times. But I thought it was an excellent performance from the Barcelona defensive midfield duo and it was really the one time Palmeiras broke that line properly they scored there were some disappointing performances on 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 the Barcelona team as well this game shouldn't have gone to penalties sort of taking the first leg into consideration and you know I said at a pod at a time you know Palmeiras were far too negative in that first leg I thought it would haunt them here and so it proved so yeah overall Barcelona certainly 
I'd say probably more than edged this tie, really. And it was a dramatic penalty shootout, wasn't it? It looked like it was going Barcelona's way. Then it looked like it was going Palmeiras' way. And then it swung back to the away side again. A question, well, not really a question for you, but it's, it's just sort of an idea that I want to put to you, Austin. Because I, I saw you tweet on, on this night, kind of Libertadores was Palmeiras' obsession this year. But I think this was part of the problem. I don't think we ever saw Palmeiras really play their best. Most of their performances were average throughout this competition. It, it always looked like they were playing the prize. If that was in their head rather than the opposition in front of them. So rather than taking it was kind of one, one game at a time, they were already focused. And I, and I think a lot of their fans were already focused on sort of, all oh, right, OK, we're going to get to the final and win this thing. And even beyond that, there was chat of, you know, going to the World Club Cup and finally winning, you know, that international title that Palmeiras are after as well, um, of being world champions. So, yeah, I find that even more bizarre because, you know, as we've seen in recent years, you know, there's very little chance of beating a European side in that competition anyway. Even, even some of the South American sides struggled to beat the Asian sides. I think this was also a problem for Flamengo, which we saw in the group stage where, you know, instead of playing the opposition right in front of them, they were playing sort of the competition, what I would say, you know, is playing the competition, thinking too far in advance. Um, and I think both Flamengo and Palmeiras suffered from too much expectation, especially given, you know, Brazilian sides really have barely made a dent in the latter stages of this competition for a good couple of years now. Um, it looks like that will change this year. But the fact that, you know, we had eight Brazilian sides in this competition to, to begin with, you know, the fact that eight started out in it, there was always a good chance that at least one would reach the semi-final. I don't know if you've got anything you want to come back with, Austin, on that, if you agree with me or, or not. Yeah, I definitely think the Libertadores was the obsession for Palmeiras. I think it will continue to be the obsession for this club. Um, it's the biggest title that they could win. There was a bit of that pressure, especially in this leg, especially once it got to the penalty shootout. I think there was that sort of tension and there was that uncertainty. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. But I do happen to think you're overthinking it maybe a little bit. Um, because Palmeiras have been poor for about six months now. It's not just a Libertadores issue for this squad. I can really count on one hand the times that they've been actually impressive this year. Uh, there was a 4-0 win against Vasco in, in the Brasilia down. There was a really impressive 2-0 performance away to Sport Recife. And other than that, I can't really think of anything where I left watching a match saying, all right, that's a good performance for Palmeiras, not just a good result. And it felt like more often than not in this competition, Palmeiras were getting good results, but not putting in good performances. They did that when they came back against Peñarol twice. They did that when they stole three points late against Jorge Wilsterman at home. And that just kind of added up. And Palmeiras were never really at the level that I think most people expected them to be. I don't exactly know why that is. I think some of that is there was no consistent goal score. Um, Miguel Borja hasn't been what most hope that he would be. Davidson has come in and has worked quite hard, but is not the type of finisher that is, that is a, a guarantee in front of goal. Uh, there's been some injury issues with this squad being without uh, their best midfielder, Moises, for a significant period of time, I think was certainly a downside for Verdun. But I don't know that there needs to be some sort of psychological overthink here that the fans were looking ahead to the Club World Cup or anything like that. I think it was simply 
Palmetus haven't been particularly good this year. And I don't know that it necessarily needs to be anything more than that. And at the end of the day, that's what kept them from going on in this Libertadores. They weren't good enough in the first leg. Uh, and that left them with just a bit too much to do in the second leg, even if the draw was was fairly kind to them going forward had they gotten through. OK, so let's move it along a little bit and uh, we'll go to another Brazilian side who went out in the form of Atletico Mineiro. Jorge Wilstermann were able to beat them over the two legs. Simon, a bit of a shock, I think, this one. Again, another Brazilian side go down. What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I watched this game and it was it was kind of exciting in a way, but it was also infuriating because... Jorge Wilson are really quite terrible. <laughs> um, and that's, first of all, okay, I'm going to be kind, first of all, because I was very, very impressed with them on the night. Like, they, the defense was very, very well organized. They got the line perfect because if they push back anymore, I mean, they tend to set themselves up at the edge of their, their box or a little bit further out. Uh, and they got, they got the organization just right. So they weren't on top of their goalkeeper. They weren't uh, allowing the play to go too close to their goal in, in terms of uh, allowing uh, Minero to get shots off. They kind of had a solid block at the edge of the box, uh, which, again, was, was well organised. But in terms of quality, they were miles and miles away. Uh, in terms of speed, in terms of strength, in terms of technique, in terms of ball control, every player in the Minero team was better than their counterpart on the Jorge Wilstermann team. So you think, okay, then how, how would they be unable to score? And it all came down to tactics, which were, which were awful, which was just embarrassingly bad. I mean, the first half, um, Minero had no urgency. Uh, were all set up to counterattack and be prepared to defend for 90 minutes. But the first half, they made it so easy because Minero were passing it across the back four. And there's one lone Wilstermann striker who's not really trying to win it back. So why, why aren't we getting into the midfield? The Minero central midfielders basically didn't touch the ball. They were completely irrelevant to the game. There was no passing it through the midfield. All they did was get it wide and then loop up a high cross towards Fred and just easy. I mean, there's three defenders in the Minero, uh, in the Wilstermann box up against one off and on <laughs> striker. Obviously, Fred's got an excellent goal scoring record, but he's not, he's not the complete forward. <laughs> we can say kindly. Um, and all they did was just loop the ball up. Uh, Wilsterman had a defender, uh, Eduardo Zenpeno, who's like 32, 33, a little bit chubby, not the most athletic, not, not, doesn't look, really look like a professional player, but he was made to look like Barresi in this game because all they did was kick the ball up in the air and he just went the head down. And it's like when you're superior to your opposition in every sense, just move the ball, make them work, draw them out of position, pass and move, do something through the midfield. The easiest, the only thing that Wilsterman, uh, you know, would have feared is being turned around. If they got Zendeno turned with his back to goal chasing, uh, sorry, back to play chasing back on a forward, if they played a 1-2 and slipped something through, they would have scored. But all they did, play out wide, get to the fullbacks, loop across into the six-yard box, Jorge Wilsterman head it clear. I mean, Wilsterman even had a few chances on the counter-attack, um, but it just couldn't be made any easier uh, for them. Honestly, there were there were Sunday league teams that could have defended the way that Minero were attacking because it was just looped into the box, headed clear, looped into the box, headed clear, looped into the box, headed clear, looped into the box, keeper takes it. It was just ridiculous. <laughs> like it was like the definition of madness, just repeating the same thing over and over again. And as I say, if Minero had put a few short passes together, they would have scored. If Minero had run 
at the heart of the defence, they would have scored. But all they did, got it to the byline, cross it in, clear, repeat. Just, it was the most ridiculous game I've ever seen. I know Austin has seen it as well. Austin, what are your thoughts? Am I being too harsh on Mineiro? No, you're not, unfortunately. Um, and this is what we've seen from Mineiro for all of 2017, seemingly. Um, when we did a Brazil pod with Tim Stillman, who's a big Atlético Mineiro fan, uh, the issue that he brought up is, I think, spot on. This is a Mineiro side that has three types of players. They have fullbacks, they have number 10s, and they have number 9s. And that's it. That's the whole squad. And so there's no way for their manager, who at this point is now Rogério Micali, who won the Olympic gold medal with Brazil last year, there's no way for their manager to change a match. There's nothing he can do to change the complexion of a game because he looks at the bench and you know the seven players sitting on the bench are a goalkeeper and six guys who do exactly what the 11 he has on the pitch already does. And, and this was a, a really poor performance for Atletico Mineiro, but yet also not a terribly surprising performance. Sometimes their crosses work, sometimes they don't. On this night, they didn't, and that was the end of Atletico Mineiro in this competition. And it was a team that I think we all had high hopes for. There's a lot of talented players on this squad. Juan Cazares is one of my favorite players in Brazil. Um, love him or hate him, as you said, Simon, Fred has a very good goal-scoring record. Habinho is, is dropping in form now at this point in his career, but can still be quite dangerous. Romulo Otero can hit a free kick. Valdivia, not the Chilean one, but the young Brazilian one with an afro, can play really well. Elias is a former Brazilian national team midfielder. There's so much talent in this Atlético Mineiro side, but they just seem incapable of playing together. And that turns out with them losing to a Bolivian side that, as you said, Simon, was well-organized and not much else. Uh, credit, all credit to Jorge Wilstermann for being prepared for what they dealt with. I thought Olivares, their Chilean goalkeeper, did well. Zenteno was another player, you know, the Bolivian international who did well. Uh, but at the end of the day, disappointing from Atletico Mineiro and good on Jorge Wilstermann for what, what is a historic result for them, regardless of how poor the opposition was. Adam, Wilstermann through to the quarterfinals. Uh, what do you have on this one? Do you know what I'm going to say, Austin? What are you going to say, Adam? You paid the ultimate karma price for your tweet to the official Wilstermann account <laughs> back in the group stages. <laughs> how do you like them apples? <laughs> That's hey, like they didn't come to play on this night, but it worked for them. <laughs> it's okay. It's all good. We got the result. It was a fun night. I'm all about the memories. So it's good enough for me. <laughs> anyway, gentlemen, let's move forward into the next game. We saw Brazilian side actually progress on the night. Botafogo beating Nacional 2-0, Austin. Botafogo didn't really enamor us to begin with, but they're slowly beginning to grow, I think, in all of us. Would you agree? Yeah, I think a lot of credit here goes to Jair Ventura, their young manager. He has this side, I think, punching a bit above their weight. They are better than the collection of their parts. There are some good players in this squad. I like the Chilean international Leo Valencia that they added, even though he didn't feature in this match. Joel Carly is a strong defender. Gachito Fernandez, their goalkeeper, is one of the best in Brazil. Rodrigo Pimpão has played very, very well in the Libertadores. Holger is a dangerous striker. But again, it's not a terrific Botafogo team. But for the first 15 minutes of this match against Nacional, they were brilliant. They were 2-0 up six minutes into this with some help from some poor defending and poor goalkeeping from Nacional. But that put them 3-0 up on aggregate. And that was pretty much it for this match. Uh, Nacional did try to react a little bit by actually playing football, that is. They did that. Uh, and then when that didn't work, 
They went to the old tired and true, well, we're out of the Libertadores. Let's see if we can take you out of it with us. And in a 30-second stretch, or 90-second stretch, rather, at the end of the second half, Nacional managed to find not one, not two, but three red cards. Um, Polenta, Rodriguez, Aguirre, all off in the snap of a finger. Nacional fans were less than pleased with the result. Uh, they caused a, a ruckus in the away end at the, the engine Yan in Rio. And probably most disappointing for both the Fogo, their left back, Victor Luis, um, on loan from Palmeiras and playing very well this year, got caught up in the silliness at the end of this match and picked up a red card. So he will miss the first leg of their quarterfinal against Gremio. Much like Michel for Gremio, it was just unnecessary. You're through. You know you're through. You know you're playing an opposition that has a history of trying to create these sort of scenes when they go out. It's kind of what Nacional does. If they're going to go out in the competition, they're going to try to take you with them. Uh, and they succeeded in that for Victor Luis. Just a silly mistake for him to get caught up in it and to see red. Again, on the night, Botafogo were better. In the tie, Botafogo were better. And Nacional went out as Nacional are, are want to do in the Libertadores. And, you know, they, they did the competition, I guess, a favor by providing at least a little headline on their way out. Okay, so leaving Botafogo behind, uh, we'll, we'll move into the next game, which was an interesting one, which saw Amalek winning in Argentina to, to level the scores up against San Lorenzo. Went down to penalty shootout again on this one, uh, uh, Adam, and I know you're a big man for penalties, so I'll come to you first. Yeah, it was. Uh, I remember the penalty shootout being quite similar to the the Barcelona Palmeiras one from the night before. The crowd was better of, though. The crowd was yeah, better. Yeah, <laughs> kind of swung swung one way and then the other and then back again. It was it was pretty dramatic. But yeah, I recall that the San Lorenzo striker Nicolas Blandi said after the game that the lack of competitive football over the past couple of months nearly proved fatal for San Lorenzo in this one. Emelec caught them a little bit cold. In, in the second leg, Blandy was saying that it wasn't an excuse, but sort of a reality of the situation. But in the end, you know, three of the four Argentine sides made it through. So I don't think it hurt them too badly in the end. Fernando Gabor's display in centre midfield really caught the eye for Emelec on the night. He seemed to be everywhere. He organised the team really well. He had the number 10 on his back, I seem to recall, but and he can play that. He was a lot more than just number 10 on the night. He was, he was pretty versatile. He seemed to be everywhere. I think he was very unlucky to be on the losing side. A couple of crucial interventions from the Peruvian international Ramos in the first half also helped keep Emelec in this game. But long enough, you know, they, they had to go to Argentina and win. And, they, and this was the first time that Emelec have done that, won an international game in, in Argentina. And... Although they did it, they ended up losing on penalties, which was a real shame for them. You know, the, the bullet header from Osvaldo Lastra from a free kick out wide gave Emelec the lead just after half time. Emelec did have a chance to put this tie to bed, really, you know, because if they'd got a second goal on the night, that would, have, that would have left San Lorenzo leaving too. You know, the Ecuadorians went down to 10 men. And then at that point, you know, San Lorenzo got on top again in this game. And in the end, you know, Emelec were hanging on a little bit for for the penalties. The, over the two legs, there really wasn't much to choose between these two sides. I don't think, strangely, both sides played the away leg, leg much better than they did their home leg, um, as reflected with the scoreline. Like you say, Dave, it was a great crowd, but it got noticeably more nervous as the penalty shootout went on. I remember that there was one shot of a kid crying in the stands 
you know, halfway through the penalty shootout. I think it was all too much for some. You know, Ramos, who, like I mentioned earlier, he had a really good game in international class performance, actually. And, and he was one of the main reasons Emelec got to penalties. And he marshaled the back three of the Ecuadorian side marginally throughout the night. But he missed his penalty and it was heartbreak for Emelec. But heroic effort nonetheless. And it was the San Lorenzo goalkeeper, Nicolas Navarro, who picked up the Man of the Match award for his penalty winning save more than anything, I think. It's, I think it was a little bit of a shame that Emelec didn't put in their best performance in that in that home leg because I think they could have caused a shock here against the Giants of Argentina. I thought Emelec did really well in this match. I thought they did well to go 1-0 up. I thought they did well to create chances to turn that into 2-0. And then I thought they adjusted really well when they went down to 10 men. They kind of realized that if they kept going after that second, they'd leave themselves exposed to concede and be out of the tie altogether. So in some sense, they maybe played for penalties a bit down the stretch. But I think that might have been the right decision given where, where they were at as a club at that point. I thought they did really, really well. And it was a touch harsh for them to go out based on how they performed on the night. But as Adam said, they were disappointing in that first leg. Um, and that is kind of what resulted in this going to penalties in the first place. And when it got there, Emelec just couldn't quite get it done. No, indeed. And, and I'll stick with you on the uh, santos uh, Atletico Paranese game, which saw Santos, you know, they'd, they'd basically done the work in the away leg. They'd won 3-2, the 1-1-0 at home here. They, they did exactly what was needed of them in the night. And, and really, I, I saw bits and pieces. Of I saw mostly most of the second half of it. And to me, sort of Paranese weren't really at it. They weren't, but they also kind of were. Uh, this was a very deceiving scoreline, I think, because for the first, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of this match, Atletico Paranaense were controlling the match. They had possession. They were creating chances, and they had Santos on the back foot. And I think they had Santos a little bit nervous. I, re- I remember the, on, on Twitter on the night that everybody was talking about the Santos goalkeeper having a stormer. In yeah, the, in the, in, especially in the first half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vanderlei played incredible in this match, and that is what made it not necessarily so easy for Santos, but what allowed this scoreline to stay where it was. Because Paranaense create, created a lot of chances, and they just couldn't take any of them. Some of them they simply missed, and some of them Vanderlei was able to stop for Santos. And then Santos hit out on the counter in the 78th minute. A really, really good play on the counterattack by Santos. Ended in Bruno Enrique, finishing past Weverton. And then it was completely over. It was 1-0. And even from there, Paranaense created chances and they still couldn't score. So Santos were less than impressive, but they had done the job in the away leg, winning 3-2. It meant that Paranaense needed to score two on the night. They weren't even able to score one. Um, Vanderlei, as you said, Adam, was the reason that Santos stayed in this tie and then were able to kill it off in the end. Um, and I thought he was pretty unfortunate to not get a Brazil call-up in the latest squad from Cheech. Uh, the three goalkeepers were Alisson of Roma, Ederson of Manchester City, and then Cassio from Corinthians, the current leaders in Brazil. I thought Vanderlei should have been among that three. He's been absolutely incredible this year, stopping some really, really good shots for Santos, playing very, very well, marshalling that back line. I think he's a player who's worthy of a Brazil call-up and, and has been unfortunate not to get one so far. Okay, dokie. Well, listen, we'll, we'll leave the games there and we'll just, before we go, take a, take a quick run round on each of the quarterfinals here. And we'll start off with what's the first one, which is uh, the All-Argentinian affair, San Lorenzo against Lanús. Uh, Adam, 
quickly, what, what, what way do you see this one? Who, who do you make a favourite? Some I'm personally hoping San Lorenzo make it through, but what way do you see it going? These two sides have, have had some interesting battles, actually, over the last couple of years, I seem to recall. Lanouche thrashed to San Lorenzo in the final of the Argentine Championship to win it um, last year. I think it was 4-0. Um, Lanouche's uh, team has changed quite a bit since then. But I've, I've, I do get the feeling that maybe they might have a little bit of the edge over San Lorenzo in this tie still. Uh, and I said from early on, I fancy Lanús to maybe reach a semi-final. So I'm going to stick with that and tip Lanús to sneak through in this one. Well, a quick point there, Argentine Premier Division starts this Friday, so August 25th. So yeah, the Argentine teams will be in, in full swing again. And Simon, for you, uh, would, would you agree with Adam there? What way do you see it going? Yeah, no, I, I you know, I think Lanús were quite impressive against uh, the strongest, albeit they couldn't put the ball in the net. I think that may be important uh, in this game. I like the uh, Jose Sand. I think he's decent, a good focal point for the attack. But he needs to make sure he puts the ball in the net when the chances come. Uh, Lautaro Acosta as well was, was really interested in that game. So I think Lanús might sneak it, but they're going to have to be more clinical in front of goal than they were uh, last week against uh, the strongest. I think that will be very key. Uh, San Lorenzo, we've seen great atmospheres, some good committed play. Uh, so I think if the uh, striking and scoring isn't uh, on point, they might they might pay the point penalty. But I think Lanús have enough in this one to maybe edge it. And also, I've liked what I've seen from San Lorenzo in this competition, considering where they started. First night of the group stage for them was a 4-0 thrashing at the hands of Flamengo at, at the Maracanã. From there, I think they've really grown as a squad. I think getting back into playing form with the Argentine first division starting back up will be to their and Lanús's benefit. I think it will help the overall quality of this tie. But I like San Lorenzo to take it. Well, I'll stick with you for the uh, the Barcelona Santos. Uh, this looks like a on paper as we stand today, Austin. This looks like a difficult one for Santos. I think it does. I didn't think Barcelona were particularly incredible against Palmeiras. Um, we've mentioned that they didn't finish pretty that well. Even their one goal came on a shot that was deflected and kind of spun past the Palmeiras keeper. Barcelona are going to have to finish better because it's really hard to see Santos only scoring one goal. Over these two legs, I think this is going to be a matchup for a lot of pacey wingers. You know, you've got Copete and Bruno Enrique on the Santos side. You've got those dangerous wingers from Barcelona on their side. I like Santos to edge this. I don't feel terribly confident about it. I don't know that they'll look impressive doing it. They kind of feel like they've overtaken both the Fogo in the not-so-impressive Brazilian side that seems to keep getting results. So I think they'll beat Barcelona. I think Lucas Lima will be the best player from either side on the pitch. The big question for Santos will be their striker situation. Uh, Ricardo Oliveira went down with what turned out to be not a severe injury in training uh, actually today. But it seemed very serious when it happened. So he's dealt with injuries all this year. Injuries, illness. We'll see if he's back to form by the time this tie rolls around in September. I like Santos to take it. Probably with a good performance at home in the second leg. But I could definitely see Barcelona pulling a surprise. And uh, Adam, yourself, how do you see this one panning out? The first thing I want to mention is I wonder what minute it will be where we see the Santos goalkeeper go down with cramp in the away leg. In this it depends on the score, Adam. <laughs> depends on the score. It does. What, what's let, let, let's, let's say it's nil-nil. I, I reckon he's, he's possibly going down as early as the 20th minute. 
I'd say, we, I'd say 25th. Like Didn't we right see him in at seven? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's, it's, it's something to keep an eye on. Obviously, I fancy Barcelona to to go through. Actually, for Barcelona to reach the final, and if they did, they would guarantee that no Brazilian side will play the final because, you know, they've already knocked out Palmeiras. They play Santos now. If they won that, then they face either Botafogo or Gremio in the semi-final. So, yeah, to reach the final, they would need to keep it beating the Brazilian sides left in. So that's quite an interesting thing to look out for. And, and another thing, and I sort of getting, you know, I criticised Palmeiras fans for getting ahead of themselves um, earlier and talking about the World Club Cup. But I can't help but think how cool it would be if we had a World Club Cup final, a World Club Cup final, um, between Barcelona and Real Madrid. I think that's a possible interesting storyline to look out for as this competition edges closer to its finish. Simon, your own thoughts on it? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think Barcelona having the first leg at home is going to be important. I think if they can get a win at home, I think that will set them up nicely. I mean, obviously, we've seen the attendances looking really impressive and sometimes blocking off a little bit. But when the, the stadium there, bright yellow is full, it's a real great atmosphere. Obviously, very dangerous on the, on the wings. Lucas Lima is obviously a player I really like for Santos. But I think if Barcelona can get a get a lead at home, uh, Santos will then try and, and push for the equaliser. And I think Barcelona have the pace out wide and the, the power on the wings to really uh, be very dangerous on the counter-attack. So I think that might be the key to success for Barcelona. Edging it in the first leg, which I think will be quite tight. And then as Santos pushed to equalise at home, I think Barcelona are perfectly set up to counter uh, with a lot of pace. So I think Barcelona might edge it uh, if that if that comes to fruition. Uh, as long as Santos don't time away for 90 minutes. <laughs> We've got nothing. If Lucas Lima is still there, because isn't he another player that could leave? I don't see him leaving. I think he's going to play out his contract at Santos and leave on a free right. come December. Oh, okay. It has been going on for years, this. Yeah, Will yeah, Lucas Lima leave or not? But I, I, did, I did see that he's a possible target for Swansea to replace um, Sigurdsson. Not a good match. Yeah, I think but, that would be a really poor move. No. For him, yeah. I was gonna say um, Barcelona not just to win that home leg, but if they could win that one nil and keep a clean sheet, then that puts a lot of pressure on Santos in that second leg. Because even if they didn't finish well against Palmeiras, we know how dangerous Barcelona is on the counter attack. So if they have the opportunity to score one goal and then make Santos have to score three to get back in the tie. I think that is a very, very dangerous spot for Santos to be. Even if they lose 2-1 in that away leg, I think they'll be happy. If Santos can grab an away goal, I think they'll like their chances. Awesome. I'm going to stick with you here because we've got the Battle of Brazil next, Botafogo against Grêmio. And I think, you know, if, if, if we look at the three sides from Brazil left in, for me, the best chance to rep- is represented by Grêmio. Uh, I think that they're playing very nice football at the minute, uh, and and they are the strongest of the three. I take it you would you would favor them in this one. I would, I would, um, but I think Botafogo have played well in this competition, and I don't think they're going to just roll over for Gremio. That first leg at home, I think, is a is a bit of a benefit for Botafogo because they'll be able to play with the crowd, and they'll be in in a situation where they could perhaps get a result there. And then could kind of hunker down and, and try and take a punch from Gremio at the return leg in Porto Alegre. Um, we could actually be seeing a lot of these two teams playing each other in the, in the next coming weeks. They're both semi-finalists in the Brazilian Cup. Um, Gremio have an advantage in their first leg there. Botafogo and Flamengo finished tied at nil in their first leg. So these two teams could be challenging for a spot in the Libertadores semifinals. 
while also challenging for a spot or the championship in the Brazilian Cup competition. I like Grêmio here. I think as long as Luan is still around, they're the best team in this competition. Lucas Barrios has been on, on terrific form for them. Pedro Rocha has been scoring goals at a rate that we haven't seen from them. And I think their defense is secure enough that they won't be as vulnerable to the Botafogo counterattacks as some teams have been. Uh, the health of Pedro Jeromel, Gremio's best center back, is something to keep an eye on. He went down injured uh, in the Copa do Brasil uh, on, on Wednesday a couple of nights ago. It looks like he should be able to be back for the start of this tie, but if he's not, that's a big hole in the defense for Gremio. There is a massive drop-off between his performance and the performance of their third-choice center back, Bresan. So if he's back healthy, I think Gremio win this tie. Maybe not easily, but fairly comfortably. If he's not, I think it becomes a bit more of a toss-up, and you could see both Fogo go through. One final note on this for me. Gachito Fernandez is the type of goalkeeper for both Fogo that could swing this tie. If he gets on really good form for seven days in the middle of September, he could frustrate Gremio over the 180 minutes and might just be able to swing this Botafogo's way if he gets on that form and if everything falls right. But I do like Gremio to advance here. And Simon, yourself, would you agree with that? You, are you a Gremio fan for this one? Or what way do you think it will go? I think Gremio, especially Luan, I was very, very impressed by Luan in the last game. Obviously, uh, he's a player you know we've seen a lot of and the Spotlight pod really uh, highlights some of his attributes. But... Yeah, he he's a ten. He's a he's a winger. He's a number nine. He he does a bit of everything, you know, a, a classic playmaker, but also can drive forward and very 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 impressive. Um, there's a good chance he won't be there. We'll have to see what happens. But I still think, uh, yeah, if Gremio play their football, I think Bob Tafogo are very organised and may steal a few things from uh, some set pieces. But I think Gremio should expect to win this game uh, if they can play their football and they can get the ball down and, and move it. Uh, they're one of the teams over the last few years that really have impressed me from Brazil in terms of their quality of play, you know, multi-dimensional. Uh, so, yeah, good squad, some good football, well organised. I think it says to lose in this one against Botafogo, who will be organised, who will make it tricky. But yeah, I think it's Gremio's to lose. And Adam, more of the same, or are you yeah, going to Botafogo? No, I echo uh, Simon's sentiments there completely. Although. I do feel very uncomfortable writing off Botafogo at any point as they just seem one of these sides which keep proving me wrong. And not in a, even in an annoying way like Sao Paulo last year where it was kind of undeserved. I, I do feel that Botafogo fully deserved to be at this stage. so They've improved yeah, a great deal, Adam, haven't yeah, they, really? Yeah. And look at the path yeah. that they've gone through. They defeated, you know, Colo really Colo in, in the, in really the playoffs. Tough. And they, the group that they came out of had Atletico Nacional, the defending champions. Barcelona was in that group. So as you said, they haven't always been impressive, but it is deserved when you look at the teams that they've come through. Uh, exactly. And, and, and also I've got a little bit of Chilean interest now, as, as, uh, as Austin mentioned earlier with Leo Valencia in this Botafogo squad. So it's going to be an interesting tie, I think, between two, two of the better Brazilian sides to watch. And Simon, moving on into the last one, which is Jorge Wilstermann against River Plate. You know, Austin alluded to it earlier in the pod there. We don't, we don't know what River Plate are going to look like, but even at that, it's River Plate. You would expect them to be the strong favourites here, surely. Yeah, um, I think, you know, we, we've seen some impressive results on Wilstermann. I think Wilstermann should be very organised. Obviously, first leg in Bolivia uh, is going to be important to set the tone. But I think if, um, if River do get that goal, 
then I, I can see them kind of uh, being quite comfortable. Uh, if the first leg River have a lead, then it's going to be basically a write-off for the second. So I think as long as Wilstermann are in the tie for the second leg, maybe get a decent result at home, I think that'll make it tricky. We've seen that they can be very well organised, they can defend well. They're not too bad on the, the counter. They have a few players who can cause a few trouble. But I think I've seen with River, obviously they have superior quality. Whether they have the, the, the team they started, the best players they started the campaign with is, is not the case right now. But they have superior quality. But also they've had a bit of luck and they've had a few scrappy goals, which have been really key. So combined with superior quality, I remember against Medellin when the pitch was just a bog, but they still scored two goals from, from set pieces and they bundled one in last week as well to, to end the tie. So I think superior quality plus a bit of a, a, bit of a tenacity and a, and a touch of luck uh, means that River Plate kind of have everything they, they need to kind of get this tie uh, and, get, and move, the, move through what could be tricky. Away in Bolivia is not going to be easy, but I think as long as the first leg isn't a disaster, they should finish their job. And Adam, yourself? It's, it's very difficult to see anything other than a River Plate victory. Uh, I was, I'm just looking at their start to their Argentine Championship as well, and it looks like they have a very kind start to the season. Fixture-less fixture list wise there as well so yeah anything other than a comfortable river plate win would be a big surprise to me and austin yourself you know we, we, it seems like you know some of their scheduling for some of the group matches was a little bit off as well with river this season you know we, we've always recognized them as contenders but it never feels like we've really spoke about them or enthused about them very much in the pods up until this point yeah, I feel like I haven't really even watched River play all that much in this competition. And as you said, a lot of that has been due to the fact that they've been scheduled across from Brazilian teams. Um, and so then finally in the round of 16, I actually got to watch them a little bit against Guarani in both legs. Fairly impressed with what I saw. I think River go through here, but I don't think it's going to be as easy as it should be. Wilstermann have impressed me with their tenacity so far in this competition. So I, I think Wilsterman will get something from the first leg. I think they'll make River work in the second leg. River's still going to go through, but I don't think they're going to just kind of run over Wilsterman uh, as many of us might have thought. Simon, I know that you've seen Wilsterman a couple times now in this competition, so I wanted to ask you an interesting question. How big of an advantage would Wilsterman need to be able to see out in the second leg in Buenos Aires for you to feel comfortable that they could actually see it out? Does it need to be 3-0? 4-0? No, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think again, it's difficult to say because obviously Minero were unimpressive and I think they got their tactics wrong. But I also think that the organisation of, of Wilstermann was so impressive that I think it did kind of contribute uh, to, to the opposition playing into their hands. I, they need to have, I think they need to win the first game. But if they do, you know, the, they didn't look completely blunt in attack. There was a bit of counter. There was a bit of pace there. Yeah, they're going to have to be very lucky. They're going to have to be uh, very, very organised. I don't know. If, if they go into the second leg with a lead to defend, who knows what could happen. You know, River haven't looked perfect in, in defence. They conceded against Guadalajara in that game. You know, I, 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 do, I do think it could be tricky. But, yeah, you know, I, it, it's difficult to say because, as, as I mentioned, Wilstermann are not on the same level uh, at all to River Plate. Uh, one beats one comparing, you know, the, the equivalent players in each team. But they're organised and they're tricky. I think it will. The, the first leg will really set the tone. And, and again, you know, if we go into the second leg, uh, the Monumental Pack Stadium, lots of expectation. You know, if, if they can get to half time in the second leg and still be ahead, 
then there'll be some nerves in the air. You know, it could get could get interesting. And I think they've shown themselves to be very mentally strong as well as committed and, and so forth. So, you know, it could become a bit of a nightmare for River Plate if it gets to the second leg and they're trying to bring back uh, bring back the game and break down the opposition. You know, Wilstermann are very well set up to frustrate. There's going to be some interesting tactics. Um, I saw some of the time-wasting against Monero, which was quite impressive. One of the, one of the new ones, the time-wasting tactics, is the goalkeeper, when the referee's not looking, kicking the ball away towards the corner flag. Not off the pitch. If it goes off the pitch, then the ball boys can deal with it. But kicking it towards the corner flag and then slowly walking over to pick it up to take the goal kick. That's a new time-wasting tactic that's quite effective because it's like goalkeepers can really walk slowly to pick up the ball. But as long as they're still moving, I'm going to get the ball. I don't know. I think we'll see all kind of stuff like that if it stays tight. Uh, Wilstermann are a tricky opposition, but it's it's Sunday League versus Premier League in, in a lot of ways in terms of quality. Keeping a clean sheet is is really the way that you could kind of see them stealing this. If they could somehow keep the sheet clean at home, you know, get a 1-0 result and then, you know, force one through in the away leg, then River would have to chase three. And that kind of seems like that's the way that if Wilsterman win this tie, that's how they do it. I don't know that they can do it. But like you said, you know, they've been organized. They're, they're cheeky and, and you never know what can happen. It's the Copa Libertadores. The second you start trying to predict this competition, it goes haywire. So who knows? But I think if they do concede early, then they could collapse and it could be like a cricket score. <laughs> like, honestly, I, I can't see them, you know, I can't really see them responding well to to massive adversity just because I don't think they're really set up to do that. So they're going to have to get have things go their way for them to be contenders over the two legs. Well, listen, chaps, that is fantastic. Thank you, as always, for your time. And before before we go, I'll say that the, the, the first leg of these uh, quarterfinals will be played on the 13th of September. And hopefully our normal service will be resumed uh, for the couple of Adora's pod by then. But listen, just uh, as I say, thanks to the guys. And before we go, I'll run around the table. First of all, Adam, where can we find you? Anything you want to throw out there? Yeah, Apart you from can your find... <laughs> <laughs> You can find me at Adam Brandon 84 You can also check out my In My Life pod, I think, in the coming days as well. You can find out just how cynical and bitter I am about life and football in general. I'm very particular about penalties as well. That will be out on Tuesday. Uh, so uh, I'll say In My Life will be out on Tuesday. Simon, yourself, where can we find you? Anything you want to throw out? That you did a great article since the last time I spoke to you. Uh, your A to Z column that you're doing in Colombian football. You did... A and I can't wait for B. Yeah, looking forward to doing that. It's something I, you know, it's helped me learn a lot about. Uh, I touched on some clubs and some stadiums and, and a lot of the famous players. Obviously, the A's. We've got Asperia, We've got Lionel Alvarez. We've got you know, a lot, uh, Juan Pablo Angel. A lot of players. Some people have heard of. Plus, a lot of players going back into the to the history of Colombian football. Some interesting stories. America de Cali came up in the first one, and there's all kinds of you know drugs and mafia combined with you know Asperia's madness so it's something that's really enjoyable I'm, I'm working on the bees this weekend uh, I've had a lot of recommendations of players I didn't know that much about so I'm learning a lot and uh, yeah I think it's quite a fun series so check it out if you want to get to know a bit more about Colombian football and I'm on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF Indeed, you're right. It's an education reading. It's just there's there's some great memories in it, but there's also some good learning experiences. I think uh, for me, uh, reading through it, Austin yourself, commentator of the year. I was listening to you commentating the match yesterday, and and you didn't slip up. And I was st- st- sitting there in the chat box, ready to jump on you the minute you went and did Americanisms, and you let me down. 
<laughs> well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, I'm at Austin underscore James 906 on Twitter. Um, when I am not doing South American football, I do commentate um, on football matches here at my university here in Chicago. Go Wildcats. Yeah, go Wildcats, exactly. <laughs> if you ever wanted to hear an American call an English sport in the style of a South American, boy, are you in luck because I'll be behind the microphone soon. <laughs> um, as you said, Dave, these, these ties kick off in the middle of September, uh, but I am sure that you will hear from us before then because we are looking at a big, big, big international window in Conable come the end of August, early September. Uh, that will be fascinating. Very, very excited for those two matches. For, for all of those teams involved, I think we're going to be obviously a lot closer to finding out who's going to the World Cup and who's not. So definitely looking we'll forward to that. We'll do a wee Brazilian pod this week as well, also, yeah. I think. Yeah, so there'll be, there'll be plenty from us coming out uh, in the meantime until we get to these Libertadores matches, but certainly looking forward to these ties as well. Also, uh, the spotlight pods um, seem as though those have been received well. Tom and I will continue to do that. The nice thing about those podcasts is there is never a shortage of subject matter. There are always good players playing in South America. And so it's, it's up to us to just find them uh, and then kind of try to bring them to light. So expect to see a heavy dosage of those, even as this transfer window winds down and then closes. Um, we'll keep those coming to you to let you know of the players that you should have your eye on and that uh, your European-based club should maybe have their eye on that are currently playing in South America. Yeah, just one more, one more plug. Almost forgot uh, the other day. Me and Simon recorded a pod looking at Davis and Sanchez, Tottenham's new addition, um, and a new addition to the Premier League, of course, as well. So, yeah, if you're interested in finding out more about him, please please check out that Globe pod. And that's just about everything I say. They've basically plugged the website and they've plugged most of the pods that are out this week. I say Serie A had a big, uh, a big preview there last week. I'm expecting a pod in from them again, possibly tomorrow in the first games and so on. So the pods are coming back. We'll have a new European show for you. Um, that'll be from the the following week. It'll be starting. I'll say, well, Adam's in my life. will be out on Tuesday. But just keep checking us out. There'll be plenty of pods in the feed um, over the course of the season, as always. And just one last thanks to the guys. And one last thanks to you at home for listening. And until September, it's goodbye. <laughs>